You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Throughout our Lord's ministry, he is called teacher by the people. It's the word rabbi. And sometimes he's called rabboni, which means good teacher, great teacher. Matthew 5 uh, actually begins that way in the most famous teaching Jesus ever did, the Sermon on the Mount. It starts this way. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them. Jesus is a teacher. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he teaches mainly from the law. He would be expected to do that as a rabbi. And one of the best ways to understand the Sermon on the Mount is to see it as our Lord's commentary on the law of God, on the Ten Commandments, on the great uh, covenant that God made with, with us. He starts with nine blessings. And then following the nine blessings, he addresses the disciples and calls them salt. And then he calls them light. He said, you're salt of the earth. And then he says, you're light, like a city set in a hill that can't be hid. So you should let your light shine and uh, uh, to the blessing of people so they can know what you've learned, seen. Uh, then Jesus focuses on the law. And it's interesting to notice how he does that in the, this very famous line that is going to be so key to understanding the Sermon on the Mount. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law. The word actually means to tear down or to dismantle. I have not come to dismantle or tear down the law and the prophets. I have come not to abolish, not to tear down or dismantle, but I have come to fulfill. Now that is a very important word. It's an important word throughout the New Testament. It's an important word throughout the ministry of our Lord. What does it mean that Jesus now is claiming and promising that he will fulfill the law? Fulfill it. What is that supposed to mean? Well, the word fulfill really means two things, uh, just to understand it. It means to show the reason for or the rationale for and the goal of the law. Uh, and then... Uh, to fulfill it would mean that, that you, you would understand the rationale, you'd understand the, the reasons, and you'd understand the goal of the law. And uh, then the law would be, for you, uh, accessible to help you and me to understand God's will for our lives as the covenant of his will for our lives. Jesus goes on to make the point that this Fulfillment means that he's going to treat the law as if it's timeless. It's not just something in a moment or in a certain time and place. He goes on to say that. Do not think that I have come to dismantle or, or destroy the law or the prophets. I have not come to dismantle them, but to fulfill them. For amen, I tell you, that not until heaven and earth pass away shall one letter, one stroke of a letter pass away from the law till all is fulfilled. He promises now that this law, this great covenant that God made will be fulfilled. And that's how he starts the Sermon on the Mount. Well, how is he going to teach the fulfillment of the law? What's he going to do to help us understand the meaning, 
the reasons, the meaning, and the goal of the law for us so that we can do something with it, so that it'll be a help to our lives. Well, watch how he does it. Uh, first, he's going to take on parts of the law. He's going to take on also the experiences of the people and interpret them and help them to see where they fit and how they fit together. I'll give you an example. Two of them today. Look in verse 43 of this is now the fifth chapter. Sermon on the Mount, you know, is chapter 5, 6, and 7 of the book of Matthew. Now we're in the fifth chapter, the very beginning, where he's now going to play this role of helping us understand the fulfillment of the law and God's will for our lives. So now it takes verse 43. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, that's not in the law. Uh, he's not talking about a, a, a commandment from the law, nor is that sentence anywhere in the Old Testament. Nowhere in the Old Testament does it say you shall love your... And it says lots of places that you shall love your neighbor. But nowhere does it say you shall love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Well, we wonder where, where that comes from because it's in quotation marks. Jesus says, you have heard it said... You shall love your neighbor, and you shall hate your enemy. Well, we have a clue, because a community that existed uh, all the way up until the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD was the Qumran community, the Essenes, and they lived outside of Jerusalem on the River Jordan. They uh, were uh, uh, great keepers of documents, fortunately, because in 70 AD, when the Romans swept in and destroyed and Jerusalem and destroyed Masada. They also destroyed the little town of Qumran, on the, which had that community of the Qumran community. But the people, fortunately, collected their writings and had done it over about a 150-year period, and they stored them, not in the city, but stored them in jars up on caves, and in 22 caves. And the Romans never found them. In fact, no one found them until 1946, when some sheep herders found these stone jars. They're the Dead Sea Scrolls. And they contain translations of the entire Old Testament, except for the book of Esther. All the books of the Old Testament were there, commentaries on the books, and also manuals of discipline for that community. Well, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we find this sentence that Jesus is now quoting. So we know where he got it. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Because the Essenic community was very, they had a lot of enemies that they hated. And they wanted everybody to know that. So they had this saying, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. And in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we found this sentence. You shall hate the sons of darkness. Well, that means that I get to decide who the sons of darkness are, or my community decides, oh, these are sons of darkness. They're uh, eligible for hatred, uh, maybe even eligible for murder, because they're sons of darkness. And notice, it's under the guise of religion. It's under the guise of their own faith system that we love our neighbors, and we'll tell you who the neighbors are, and we'll tell you who your enemies are. And they, for the, it's eligible now, they're eligible for hatred. And so this saying, this saying is there. Jesus decides in the Sermon on the Mount to take on that saying. And we are grateful for it because he, he uh, 
redefines enemy. He redefines a whole lot of things in the Sermon on the Mount. Now watch him do this. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, and you're going to hear that several times whenever our Lord handles the law or handles the sayings of the people, he'll say, but I say to you, he's going to play the role of the teacher. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The word persecute is a very harsh word in the first century uh, Greek language. It's a word that means literally to run down. It was used in the gladiator games and they talked about charioteers who ran down animals, actually ran them down to death. And sometimes even prisoners were thrown into the, into the arena and the charioteers would run them down. And that's the word that is the word persecute. It means to be, to run down. And so now our Lord says, uh, you've heard it said, Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, whoever they are now. Pray for those who run you down. And then the last line is a beautiful line. So that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Now this is a teaching of Jesus. He is now, he'll do this throughout the whole Sermon on the Mount. He's going to take sayings. He's going to take uh quotations from the Old Testament. Just before that, he took the quotation, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You've heard it said that. And he will then discipline that saying. But I say unto you, now that's a saying actually in the scripture. Here is a saying that's not anywhere in the Bible, but yet the people know it. And maybe some people actually are brooding about that saying. They're thinking about it, maybe like it. And so Jesus disciplines it. He plays the role of the teacher. And he teaches that we should love our enemies and pray for those who run us down. But Jesus not only taught this, he did it. And that's why we respect him. Why do people follow Jesus Christ? It's because of what he taught, but also what he did. He did what he taught. He taught, love your enemies. He did this on the cross. One of the seven last words of our Lord on the cross was, Father, it's a prayer, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He did not hate his malefactors. He did not hate soldiers that crucified him. Uh, there were two thieves that were crucified with him. One of them uh, mocked him, and he maybe had been a murderer. Who knows what he was? But he was an enemy of the people. And the other uh, thief on the cross uh, said to, to the, the other one, he said, why are you doing this? We're guilty. This man is innocent. Teacher, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus said another one of the great words from the cross to that malefactor, that man who is a, a thief. He says, amen, I say to you, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Jesus loved those who everyone thought of as enemies. Jesus loved those who ran him down. He played that role in his life, and that's why we trust him. Now, he also takes on the law itself. And now we'll look at a passage, the first passage, in our Lord's exposition of the law that he takes on in chapter 5. As soon as he finishes saying, think not that I've, I've not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it, then he's going to start teaching on the law. You might expect, why does he start with commandment number one? Wouldn't that make the best sense? Start with, uh, there's no other God. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, strength, and mind. And then, and then thy neighbor is thyself. Law one and two. Why not do that? Instead, uh, Jesus decides to start with another 
hard commandment. It's the sixth commandment. And now let's look and watch how he does it. Watch Jesus, the teacher. You've heard it said, in this case, uh, in ancient times, he's referring now to one of the commandments in the Ten Commandments. You've heard it said by those in ancient times, you shall not murder. That's the sixth commandment of the Ten Commandments. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, remember, we saw him do this before. Now he's going to do that again. He's going to now redefine, uh, expand the definition of murder. It's going to be uh, maybe uh, make us uncomfortable to watch how he does it. Uh, maybe some of you were a little relieved. Maybe I was when he said, thou shalt not murder. I'm glad I'm not guilty of that, uh, that I have not done. But now when this command begins to be unfolded by Jesus, he's going to move the starting point for murder back further than we imagined. And so he says, you've heard it said of old, you shall not murder. Uh, and whoever murders will be liable for judgment. But I say to you that if you're angry, if you're angry, Here's another harsh word, anger. If you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable for judgment. He doesn't say you're a murderer, but he says you're liable for judgment. And if you insult a brother, by the way, the Revised Standard Version doesn't know what to do with this Hebrew word that's thrown in here. There are not many Hebrew words that appear in the New Testament text that aren't translated for us. A few. Take the word hallelujah. That simply comes into the book of Revelation as a Hebrew word. Hallel, praise Yahweh. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. And so we love that word. Or the word amen is used by Jesus in this very text several times. That's a Hebrew word. That's not a Greek word. And it, it appears in the New Testament text in, as a Hebrew word, not translated, but transliterated. Just simply given to us, amen. It means rock in the Old Testament. It means post. It means faithful. And so it's like saying faithful, faithful, or rock, rock, when he says amen. And he uses it a lot. So uh, that's one. Now... A bad one appears. Uh, the RSV decided to translate this, and if you insult a brother or sister, uh, you will be liable for the counsel. The word for insult, though, is really a Hebrew word, raka. And Jesus simply puts the word in. He just says it. He says the Hebrew word, raka. If you say, and then the text, when it's given to us in the New Testament, it just repeats that Hebrew word, raka. It's a slang expression in the first century. And in Hebrew, it means empty-headed. Uh, you know, when you think of some of today's uh, words of abuse that we use in the streets to each other, this seems a little bit mild. But evidently, it was considered a pretty bad insult in the first century. You empty-headed person. You're empty-headed. So if you say raka, empty head, but he even has one more, uh, then you'll be liable for uh, the, the council, for, for the courtroom. And if you say you fool, that's another one. That literally means you silly one or you fool, you foolish one. Uh, by the way, our Lord will later use this word in the Sermon on the Mount. In the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, he tells a parable about himself. And he says, if you hear these words of mine and do them, you're like a competent carpenter who built his house on rock. But if you hear these words of mine and you don't do them, you'll be like the 
silly carpenter who built his house on sand. Notice he doesn't say the bad carpenter or the evil carpenter, the silly carpenter, the foolish carpenter. He picked the wrong foundation to build on. So he uses that word again, foolish or fool. You're foolish. And now here it's used. He says, if you use that to a brother and you say, or sister, you say, you fool, you, you raka, you empty headed person. Uh, then Jesus goes on to show there are consequences for that. So if you say uh, that to a brother or sister, you'll be liable for the council. If you say you fool, you'll be liable. And now he makes it even worse. You'll be liable for Gehenna fire. And the RSV decided to translate that to the hell of fire. I have to explain it. It, it. Just outside the gate of Jerusalem was a garbage dump. And the garbage dump always was burning like most garbage dumps are because they would burn the debris out there. And when people walked by that garbage dump, they named it Gehenna. And so Gehenna becomes the name for the lake of fire hell for punishment. And it's used that way in a slang way, in an expressive way. And so Jesus now uses that. And everybody would know what that means. You, uh, you'll be liable to the hell of fire, to the Gehenna of fire, this garbage dump. So now he's got us pretty much scared about doing those things with regard to uh, people around us. It's still not murder, but it's, notice, it's back. It's on the way to murder, in a sense. So when you're offering your gift at the altar. Now he has going to have two people he's going to track. First is a worshiper. You're on your way to worship at the altar. You're worshiping God. But remember now, this worshiper who's worshiping God has got some bad things in his uh, in his life right now. He has called one person a raka. He's called another person foolish. So he's And he's also filled with anger toward someone. And so he's on his way to worship. And our Lord does an interesting thing. He says, when you're on your way to worship and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, they know this and they therefore have this to accuse you of. You have been hating them, you're angry, and you call them raka, and you've called them foolish. All right. They, you know that. They know that. So you're on your way to worship. They have something against you. And then Jesus says something interesting. He says, stop your journey to worship. He doesn't say go to the temple and confess your sins and make them right with the Lord. And then you can come back and work with these people. No, he stops them on the way to worship. He interrupts their act of worship and says, no, leave your gift before the altar and go first and be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. The word reconcile is an interesting word, dialasso. It means to, uh, uh, to listen and to talk. It's a word for dialogue. We get, it's part of the dialogue vocabulary from the book of, from, from Greek. And it's it, to talk, to listen, to listen and talk. And it's called reconciliation, to reconcile. To listen to the, the brother and sister that has something against you and that you are in trouble with. So listen to them and talk to them and then leave your, your gift, go and be reconciled, listen and talk to each other. And then we get the idea of dialogue from that and then come and offer your gift.
And then he says this, come to terms quickly with your accuser. Now we've got somebody else. We've got, not that we are on the way to worship with something that's wrong in our lives, but now somebody else is on their way too, but they're an accuser. They're on their way to the courtroom and they want to see punishment for us. They're, go- they're meeting, they're not going to worship God. They're going to find the prosecutor to prosecute us for our f- flaws, for our hatred, our anger, or for these things we did. So he says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're on your way to court. Uh, by the way, the word terms there is a weak word for a beautiful Greek word that's used there. The, uh, the word is EU. In Greek, if you put an EU in front of a word, it means good. But it's then EU in front of the word understanding, a good understanding. So literally, the better translation would be come to a better understanding. Uh, in, the, in, the message, in the message, Eugene Peterson translates this, make things right. Come to a right understanding. Come to a better understanding. Uh, and that's you knew a good word, a good idea. Come to a good idea or a good understanding and do it quickly with your accuser while you're on the way to the court. Or your accuser, and now there's a humorous part, I think. This is a, it's a little, uh, it's a little bit of gothic or dark humor, but there it is. Or your accuser, if you don't do this, your accuser may hand you over to the judge, and that's not the end of it, and the judge to the guard, and the guard will throw you in prison, and amen, now he uses the word amen again, I tell you, you'll never get out until you have paid the last penny. And that's humorous in a way. It's a little bit overstated, but all because you were angry and all because you said raka and all because you uh, uh, called somebody foolish, but because you had that harm that happened in your life and the accuser accused you, brought you to the jury. Be careful, there are consequences, Jesus says, to the wrongness that we do. Well, notice what he's done in this interesting little passage. What he's done in the handling of the law is he's given us a strategy for avoiding murder. You want to avoid murder, and that is one of the commands, thou shalt not murder, and certainly no one wants to be a a murderer. So how do you avoid murder? And he has a fourfold strategy that he gives you. The first is watch out for runaway anger. Runaway anger is the first bad step toward which may end up in murder. In fact, James says that, uh, who's the brother of our Lord, wrote a book called James, and he says, what causes wars? It starts with the, uh, it starts with anger that is run away, like a cancer in our lives. Uh, It's toxic. In fact, James writes it this way, be quick to listen, be slow to speak, be slow to anger, because anger does not produce God's righteousness. It doesn't produce his righteousness. So beware of anger. Anger itself, beware of it. Uh, Watch out for it. Be careful of that. That's the first step in the strategy. The second is watch out for bad words that disrespect another person. And that's the problem with raka and with foolish. 
These are bad words. They disrespect another person. As we know, a great deal of harm, a great deal of violence that happens on the streets happens because maybe one person felt disrespected by another and mocked by another, and then vengeance set in. They had to get even. So avoid the words of disrespect. And Jesus is teaching that. And he says, remember, you'll be liable for judgment when you use words like this. And you may end up in front of the judge, the judge then to the jailer, the jailer to the prison. And you'll have to pay every penny for that. And then he tells a story. He tells a story of two people on their way. One is religious. That's the one going to worship. But he's got something wrong in his worship. Uh, We know that he's got anger there. And we know that he's already disrespected the people around him. And he's on his way to worship. And Jesus cuts that off and says, I don't want that kind of worship. I don't want you to worship that way. I want you to stop and get reconciled first. Go and be reconciled. And he, he makes that. And then find a better way. Find the better truth. So he does that. But also there's a person that's not on the way to worship on the way to vengeance, on the way to harm, and get even with someone who's done wrong. He calls them the accuser. There's somebody that's accusing you, and they're on the way too. And he says to both, he says, quickly, with both of you, uh, find a way to have dialogue. Find a way of talking and listening to each other, and then find a better word, a better word. That better word, that what we might call a larger hope, that will give you uh, a way to uh, resolve what's happening between you. So, find the better idea. And now, the big question is, what is that better idea? Uh, what is that you know? What is that good truth or that good understanding And it's it's interesting, isn't it? Now we're back to fulfill. Jesus Christ himself is started by saying, I'll fulfill the law. And now in this little parable of the two people that are on their way, one to go and worship. And, you know, we're scared of that in many ways. Pascal was the one who said men never delight in doing evil as much as if they can do it for religious reasons. And you give me a person who's highly religious with an idea like uh, love my neighbor and hate my enemy. And I've got that and that is working in my life so that I can find an approved enemy and I'll do evil and I'll have a religious, a fraudulent religious reason for it. Notice our Lord cut that off. He says, don't call that religion the worship of God. It's not the worship of God. He cuts it off. He says, I want you to first talk that through, listen to that with each other and resolve it and find a better idea. And then also the person that just wants vengeance, the person that just wants punishment and wants people uh, who've done harm to be punished. He also tells that that person, quickly work out a, a resolution, find a better idea. What is the better idea? This brings us to another word in the New Testament for reconciliation. If this one word is the word translated reconciliation, dia lasso, dia log, dialogue, is a, a, a way of resolution. Here's, there is another word. And the other word is, uh, I think, what the eunua is all about. 
Open to Romans 5. In Romans 5, St. Paul gives us another word for reconciliation in explaining Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of the law. Watch St. Paul. He puts it this way. It almost sounds like he's been listening to the Sermon on the Mount. This is verse 10, chapter 5. If while we were enemies, notice, enemies, we were reconciled to God. Now, notice, he's not going to talk about reconciliation because of dialogue or because of something we did to resolve a crisis we have with each other. But we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more surely, having been reconciled, we will be saved by his life. But more than that, we even boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. By the way, the word here for reconciliation is not the word diaklaso, not the word dialogue. It's the word katalizo. Katalizo is a very important Greek word. St. Paul uses it in two decisive places, here and also in 2 Corinthians. It's a word in, in English, catalyst becomes a, a term in chemistry, where in, in a chemical reaction, uh, a chemical component will come into a reaction and it changes everything in the reaction, but it stays what it is. It doesn't change. It just changes what it touches. And that's called a catalytic agent. And that's the word that St. Paul uses here. Jesus Christ stays who he is. He is the redeemer. He is the one who uh, was able to love his enemy. He's the one that went to the cross in our behalf. He conquered death in our behalf. He stays who he is. We are changed by him. He's the one that is the new, the new truth. The new truth that's here in the Sermon on the Mount that our Lord uses when he says, find the new truth. The new truth is Jesus Christ himself who undergirds and comes underneath our dialogue, who comes underneath it and gives it its stature and gives it its possibility. Catalizo. Reconciliation. The reconciliation comes when Jesus Christ is able to change your life. And he can change our lives. He can make us new. He can take away the fear. He can take away the hatred. He can resolve it. We may not be able to. We may do a lot of reconciling and calm things down. But we need someone that is able to resolve and heal the brokenness. And that's what he does. And so Jesus uh, plays that role. That is the fulfillment of the law. He fulfills it by doing what we cannot do. Completing the law. We're not able to confer forgiveness on ourselves. We need to be forgiven. We need to be healed. We need that undergirding underneath it that lifts us up. And so Jesus Christ plays that role. Let me tell you a little story that kind of illustrates this to me. A number of years ago when I was a student at Princeton Seminary, I used to go quite often up to New York City. Uh, my uncle lived there and... Uh, uh, I love to go up there, and he loved to go to the Radio City Music Hall, and so he kind of introduced me to Radio City Music Hall, and I love going to Radio City Music Hall. It's uh, one of the greatest musical venues and movie venues there is in America. 3,000 people can sit in the Radio City Music Hall. And I was there once for a patriotic uh, uh, concert that they were having, and they have these great... Uh, extravaganzas and great concerts there with the Rockettes or the great dancing group at the Radio City and I was there and it was a 
It was an event in which they were honoring America, and they were singing great patriotic songs, and it was very beautiful. As I remember, they had a glee club there from one of the universities, like the University of Michigan, I think. Glee club was there on the stage as well, and they were singing all these great songs. And the last song in the set was uh, America the Beautiful by Catherine, uh, uh, by, uh, Catherine Lee Bates. In 1904, she wrote, uh, Oh, beautiful for spacious skies, for amber waves of grain. This amazing, it's a hymn, really, America the Beautiful. And it, in the, the first chorus, when it comes to the chorus, she says this, God shed his grace on thee, and crown thy good with brotherhood from, she, from sea to shining sea. And in the second stanza, she prays uh, again a prayer for us as a country. And she says, God mend thine every flaw. Confirm thy soul in self-control, thy liberty in law. She prays for that. It's a great song. And I was listening to this uh, great uh, this great peacemaking song, this great song of patriotism and of, of joy. And uh, suddenly I began to sense in this great auditorium, there was a sound coming. They had an orchestra there and the choir, this glee club was singing, but I began to sense a sound coming. And I looked down to the corner in, in the Radio City Music Hall, they have a little corner right near the, uh, uh, near the stage. And when the, uh, a door opens and then the console of the great organ slides out from the door. And if you're alert and you can see the organist starts to play and they have this giant organ in the Radio City Music Hall. And I began to realize that this mighty organ was coming in underneath the University of Michigan Glee Club, underneath the, the orchestra. And it was coming underneath as they, they were singing America the Beautiful. And it became a beautiful kind of parable to me that what we need is something mighty that can come underneath and lift up this goal to uh, have reconciliation, this goal to dialogue with each other, this goal to find the better way, and it comes up underneath. And that's what that's what St. Paul is describing in Romans 5. If while we were enemies, God has reconciled us, he has done what we can't do for ourselves, he's given us hope and given us this new, great new idea, so that now we have... We have this joy. We have this possibility of life. Well, I think that's what our Lord is doing when he takes on the law and takes on even sayings that aren't in the law, but they're just sayings that are circulating among the people that, are, that can be very damaging. And he takes it and he heals it. And he does it, and what he teaches, he does. And that's why we follow Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love and thank you for the way uh, you take hold of this marvelous covenant, the covenant of law, and fulfill it for us. And also thank you for the new truth, the new understanding that can enable us to make peace with each other. We thank you for that. Bless us in our families. Bless us in our relationships with people on the streets. Bless us as a people, a nation, and nations between nations, that we can learn how to dialogue and we can learn how to discover our belovedness, that there is a great belovedness underneath uh, every one of our lives, and it comes from you. 
Now bless us in Christ's name we pray. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.